This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that we are available on all of the major podcast streaming platforms. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and of course, Apple Podcasts. As our audience grows, so does our reach. If you know someone that should have health gig in their lives, next time you see them, invite them to subscribe to the show. Namaste. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Matthew Johnson is the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is an experimental psychologist and an expert on psychoactive drugs and the psychology of addiction and risk behavior. For over 12 years, Dr. Johnson has conducted human research with psychedelics and has conducted studies with nearly all classes of psychoactive drugs. Please welcome to HealthGig, Dr. Matthew Johnson. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Trish and I are fascinated with the topic of psychedelics. We've read a little bit about it from Michael Pollan and others. And so we just want to ask you for our listeners, what are psychedelics? And just start from the beginning. Psychedelics refer to a certain class of psychoactive drugs. Now, sometimes that word is used broadly. Psychedelics used to include things like cannabis and ketamine, PCP. But when folks say classic psychedelics, a lot of times folks will use that term. What that's referring to are drugs like psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms. That's what a lot of people call them. Or LSD. Most people know what that is. Or mescaline, which is in the peyote cactus, which is used sacramentally by the Native American church. Or a drug called dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, which is in ayahuasca, which some people will have heard of, a sacramental beverage used in a number of South American religions and indigenous tribes. So these are all classic psychedelics, and they work by activating one primary receptor in the brain, the serotonin 2A receptor. So these different psychedelics, you know, there are differences in the way they work, but it's more of variations on a theme. It's sort of akin to the difference between Xanax and Valium and Ativan. They're all benzodiazepines. They have the same basic mechanisms, but there's some minor differences in how they work. Why is everyone so excited about psychedelics now? Psychedelics were at the cutting edge of psychiatric and neuroscience research From really the early mid-1950s through the late 60s, early 70s. And then the carpet was really pulled out from the research, mainly because they became so highly associated with the counterculture and so many of the societal changes at the time. And there was a really large increase in the so-called recreational or street use of these drugs. And to be clear, there were very real casualties, including some psychiatrically vulnerable people who should have never taken these drugs. And there were advocates who said everyone should use these drugs and a lot of reckless talk like that. 
So unfortunately, it really wasn't that it was found that you could not do medical research with these drugs safely. You could certainly do incautious research and medical application. That's true for any area of medicine. But with the right safeguards, you know, it was never really shown that you couldn't research these things safely. But nonetheless, it was that cultural baggage and association that really, I think of it as sort of as traumatized the society. So we really had to wait a couple of generations for time to pass before it was feasible to jump back in those waters. And what is it that you want the world to know about these psychedelics? Tell us what they do, what you're studying, what we need to know about them. We understand that they were put away and now they're back, slowly kind of coming back. Or are they coming back like a train? Well, it has been slow, but there's an acceleration there. I think those of us in the field who research these things are cautious about them taking off like a train. (laughs) You know, we need to be going the speed limit. You know, we need to go through the right steps. We need to always be ever mindful of the known risks and make sure that we attend to the safeguards known to minimize those risks. But you asked about what do I think people need to know about this area, about psychedelics. The two big things are they are incredibly promising as both tools to understand the mind and also as potential therapeutics for a number of psychiatric disorders. And the exciting thing is that they seem to work by prompting a psychological experience. And this is where they really differ from all other psychiatric drugs. They are more like psychological therapy. Administering a psychedelic puts the person in a vulnerable state, but one in which, in the right environment, they can have these extraordinarily different experiences, and they can interact with their own mind, so to speak, in a very different way. And so introspection or sort of like self-observation can be heightened. And so it's this general mechanism that creates this potential where they may not just be potentially helpful for addiction, you know, to this one particular drug, but addiction in general to this drug or that drug, you know, to tobacco, to alcohol, to cocaine, to opioids, perhaps, And not just addiction, but the treatment of depression. And so I think it's very exciting that we may have a tool that is broadly applicable. I don't want to overstate it. All of these individual disorders need to be carefully examined in their own right. But the pattern that's emerging is one where there's this general mechanism where they could be brought to bear. The other thing I want people to know is just that there are definitely risks. There are definitely casualties. This is not any encouragement. The research is not an encouragement to replicate this on your own. We know a lot about the potential risks, and there are very good mechanisms to minimize those in medical use. Isn't it true, though, that there's little toxicity in these psychedelics? There is very little physiological toxicity. So I view drugs like, you know, really any other tool or intervention. The key is understanding what are the risks, what are the nature of those risks, and then what can you do to minimize them? And so psychedelics are different creatures. And again, I'm talking about the classic psychedelics. Some of the other ones differ in terms of their toxicity and addiction potential. But there are some things that make them very different than other drugs of abuse. They have very low physiological toxicity. 
So it's freakish to have a drug that there is no known lethal overdose. That's true for psilocybin. There's no known dose that's going to make your liver die out and it's going to cause brain damage and it's going to make your heart stop or it's going to make you stop breathing. You know, you can't say that of caffeine. You know, there's very few drugs, most over-the-counter drugs you can't say that about. And the other thing that makes them really odd on the positive side, in addition to the low physiological toxicity, is the low addiction potential. Mm. They can certainly be abused, and by that I just mean, in psychiatric speak, that just means any way of use that can harm yourself or others. Mm. So an obvious example is like, you know, driving a motor vehicle when you're on this substance, you know, but also getting into a pattern of use that might interfere with your family or your schoolwork or your profession, anything like that. But they're not drugs of addiction, and by that I mean compulsive drug-seeking. No one is jonesing for their next fix of psilocybin or LSD. Even big fans, they're more likely to talk about building up the courage to use their next dose rather than, you know, using. And frequent use tends to be more on the, like every weekend would be really frequent use of these drugs, you know, and most drugs that are drugs of addiction, you're talking about daily use patterns. You know, when I think of drugs, I think of manufactured things, you know, like just manufactured pills. Mm-hmm. So you could call this a drug? Scientifically speaking, I don't follow the understandable distinction between, you know, plant-based or naturally occurring substances and not calling those drugs versus the synthetic ones and calling those drugs. There's a gray area, but a psychoactive drug is a substance that affects one's behavior and, if you will, affects one's mind. So it has an interaction with the central nervous system typically. And so that could be naturally occurring, like the caffeine in my coffee here, or it could be you know, completely synthetic ones. And one example of that, why that's a gray area, is that you have drugs like morphine, which is naturally occurring in the opium poppy, then a slight tweak of that makes that heroin. Mm. You mentioned this earlier, that psychedelics sort of open up your mind. Can you speak to that versus pharmaceutical drugs numbing the symptoms? I mean, you just summed it up. Great. I mean, that's the exciting part about it, that it does seem that the psychedelics have their potential because they are able to get to the underlying roots of disorders rather than treating symptoms. That said, I just want to be very clear that SSRIs and traditional antidepressants, these are important tools to have. And it's true that, you know, the effects tend to be modest and not everyone is helped, but that's an incredible tool, especially when you have people at the lower end of the scale near the suicide end, like a little bit of boost on depression scores could mean the difference between life and death. So mm-hmm. this is no competition between SSRIs and, you know, these potential new medications. Nonetheless, it does prompt an interesting comparison and a rationale for why these drugs may have greater potential for efficacy. So, for example, with addiction, most addiction medications in psychiatry are, many of them are so-called substitution or agonist therapy, so methadone or suboxone to treat opioid. Now, again, important tools. I mean, they decrease HIV rates, lethal overdoses, they increase employment, decrease crime lot of good data on that. But nonetheless, you are essentially replacing one drug for a safer form of essentially the same drug. The same is true for most smoking medications. Nicotine replacement, the patch, the gum, and even Chantix is 
kind of a tweak on that. It's a so-called partial agonist, another form of substitution therapy. But with psychedelics, when people have experiences with psychedelics where they report overcoming addiction, they tend to talk about those things that tend to come up when you ask people in general, tell me about when you quit drinking, tell me about when you finally stopped using cocaine or even smoking, tobacco smoking. People tend to talk about, and again, not because of a drug experience, but just broadly speaking, people tend to say, I just saw the big picture. Like I saw what this was doing to my life and I asked myself what was meaningful. Oftentimes this isn't a religious or a spiritual perspective if they talk that language, but my word, what is life about and why am I doing this? And I think psychedelics can be effective for addiction because they prompt those questions. So interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why it's so different for everybody because everybody has different addictions. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I would take a certain psychedelic for alcohol or you would take it for drugs. It would be this one and then it sort of forms to you. Right. And kind of like of an adaptogen. You could make the argument that it could fall into that yeah. category, yeah. that term that's sometimes used. And often people will participate in our trials, like, for example, with smoking cessation, and they'll have this change in their life outside of that area. They'll say things like, my relationship with my spouse has just gone through the roof because I realized how I was really being selfish in the way I was behaving with them or things like this, or I'm a better parent now, or I even things like I stopped biting my nails. Yeah. So uh, Trisha and I often use this expression, change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. It sounds like the psychedelics is a vehicle to help you change your outlook or how you see things. Right. Wow. That's a great way to put it. I mean, that really is. And that's really the core of what we know in good psychotherapy. So an intervention like cognitive behavioral therapy, that's really the heart of it, that, you know, there is not this direct connection between the environment and your behavior. There is certainly a relationship there, but the mediator is how you choose to relate the environment. You could choose to look at adversity in a horrific way and the world is punishing you and woe is me. And we all do that to some degree, but you know, you could also look at any adversity as an opportunity, you know, so that's just one example. So yeah, people really tend to have this more of this plastic fluid, at least temporarily, understanding of their own mind. So we see that very strongly in the trial we did with 51 cancer patients, where so often people realized that, yeah, I'm watching out for that next tumor, but I can actually get out in the sunshine with my grandkids, and I'm not doing it. Like, I just have to choose to do that. Why do you think evolution produced areas of the human brain that can generate such experiences? Because these experiences wouldn't have helped us survive in the wild. That's interesting. So you'll have some people, and I don't agree with this, that, you know, those brain receptors were waiting around for drugs. (laughs) I don't think, I think that it's more likely that the plants and the fungi have produced various psychoactive drugs. One plausible theory is as essentially insecticides or a way to get organisms not to eat them. (laughs) But... The thing I think is interesting about psychedelics is that they seem to interact with a biology that is more general, that humans do have a propensity to have what's called in the psychology of religion mystical experiences or these altered states of consciousness. And I do think this is something you can't have hard evidence on, but I think it's theoretically very plausible that it afforded benefit to early societies to have the members 
not just, you know, through drug or eating plants, but various mechanisms, chanting, prayer, fasting, ways to get out of your normal routine and focus on the big picture. And that probably affords some you know, benefit to that society and surviving, creating group cohesion amongst other things. Mm, that's what Michael Pollan talks about is when he had the experience of the psychedelics, that he was a guy that was very of this world and everything was science-based. And he had what he calls a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And he asked his, what do you call the person, the therapist that you work with? The at, guide. The guide. Think, yeah. He asked his guide, you know, how do I sustain this feeling? And the guide brought up meditation. Mm-hmm. How does psychedelics and opening up experiences go hand in hand with meditation? We have done some research on that. We published one trial with people interested in starting a meditation practice. And the take-home is that we found an interactive effect where people who had both a high-dose psychedelic session and they had a high level of support for meditative practice and other spiritual experience, those people tended to have the better outcomes, including increases in pro-social measures, you know, how much they're basically giving to the world and helping other people, that type of thing. But we've also done some work. We're analyzing it now to understand what kind of experiences long-term meditators have when they're actually on a lower dose of a psychedelic. Nothing definitive to say about that right now. I think it's going to be interesting. But in general, I'd say there are more unanswered questions, but there tends to be some connection. It does look like psychedelics are sort of a crash course or an an extreme sort of the bungee jumping version of interacting with the same systems that meditation can interact. And I think there's certain things that just that by itself won't do. Like you're probably not going to have one experience and by itself that's going to make you a more mindful sort of dedicated practice person. In the best scenario, an intense experience can provide a motivation for someone. Like a jump start. Right. Analogies have been made like the helicopter ride to the top of the mountain. So you can consider that a cheat since you didn't have to do the hard work. But in the best scenario, it's like, imagine before you're like, you know, people say there's a mountain. I don't even think there is a mountain top. You know, they're just walking us through circles in the woods. Like, what is this so-called mountaintop? And then you take the helicopter ride and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> and then you get back to the lower level and it's like, ah, now I know it's worth. And now I can see I generally need to go in that direction to get there. And now it's worth kind of the hard work. Well, I think that's what's so intriguing because in cases where this is effective, the frequency, it only takes one or two times. Right. That's another piece of evidence really suggesting this is more like a psychotherapy than a traditional psychiatric medication. It's not just treating symptoms. It's like a crash course on yourself where someone has the ability in a safe environment to really deeply think and reflect on their life and what's important. And then from that, one could do a number of things. If someone wants to take one of these substances just to kind of have a fun time, a lot of times that's all that happens. It's interesting, actually, a lot of times someone takes them just to have fun. And they, despite that lack of important intention, they do have a life-altering experience. But nonetheless, you know, you are stacking your odds in, you know, sort of one category. But when one goes into these experiences with this deep intention to use this therapeutically, you know, it can really help them. It's part of the exciting package of the potential in psychiatry is that, you know, so many of the side effects are because we're taking pills every day 
years from now, it's like, oh, well, that increased the chances of Alzheimer's disease or that causes a problem for the absorption of calcium in your gut or what have you. These are largely the product of the chronic administration of a substance. So it's nice to have something where it's just a facilitated learning experience. Can you go back to the cancer study with the 51 patients and tell us a little bit more about that and these end-of-life patients? Yeah, there was a mixture. There were people that were clearly in the so-called terminal category, and there were people who were not necessarily. And one of the things that I learned when delving into that is that, and a lot of people will understand this, you know, because of their own life experience and with their loved ones, but that's a huge gray zone. You know, sometimes at the extremes, you know, well, your prognosis is really good versus others, like you would be lucky if you were around in six months or less. But so much is actually in that middle zone. So it was both. But even the people who weren't so-called terminal, we required that they have substantial distress about their cancer. And it had to be potentially life-threatening. So there either had to have been some type of metastasis, a good reason to be concerned and ever vigilant, or there had to have been at least a year that had passed and they were still you know, having high levels of anxiety and depression. Because it's understandable, a lot of people have a diagnosis that, you know, the prognosis is ultimately pretty good, and initially they're really freaked out, but then, you know, they're doing better. So we didn't want to just take advantage of that naturalistic time course of those folks. We wanted people, it was clear there was a pattern of ongoing suffering. And then what did you find? Did you find that they were less depressed, and you said that they would want to go out and spend the day, but was it more than that? Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating to study these experiences because there's so many differences, but there are some things I could say about the commonalities. Well, we saw dramatic decreases in depression and anxiety that are just much larger than what you see with traditional medications. Symptoms plummeted. People were dramatically improved. And then remarkably, six months later, they were at essentially the same low levels. I mean, this is from just having one high-dose experience. So you just don't see that. The best we've seen in psychiatry for depression along those lines is ketamine, which has been considered a breakthrough and justifiably so, like, you know, the idea that it would work immediately and last one to three weeks, which is absolutely incredible, especially if you're talking about people that are dealing with suicidality. But gosh, if that's a breakthrough, I don't even know what you call this. Now, to be clear, that's further along in its research. But if these results hold up and if they are more broadly applicable to even outside of cancer, I don't even know what you call that. I mean, these are just it's it's paradigm shifting. It is. And I can tell you the people in terms of what it was like, it's just a lot of times there was an opening up of these individuals like a guy in his 30s that had a stage four pancreatic cancer that just hadn't had those conversations. I mean, he was going to die. And little kids, I mean, just stuff it's hard to even talk about, Mm -hmm. like very difficult And just people having these conversations with their families, you know, to tell their little kids that they're going to leave and just really laying it out there with like courage afterwards because they see this landscape of suffering, this pattern that they could do something about. They could have those conversations with their loved ones and and just explain that they're going to go and they're okay with it? Is that the kind of conversations? And that they love them and they're able to talk versus people just fighting their whole way? Is that the idea with depression and sadness? Right. Sometimes people understandably ask, well, are people kind of giving up on their treatment? And 
you know, there are paradoxes all over these experiences, but one of the things is we don't see that. People tend to be more in the category of, I'm going to do everything I can, you know, I'm going to do what the docs say, but in the meantime, I'm not going to let it destroy my life. You know, like they want to live, but mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they're not dead yet. And that's the message that comes through. Like I call them duh experiences. It's not a very scientific term, but I think it, it, it sums it up. It's like these are things that people could have told you before, whether it's like with smoking, addiction, dealing with cancer. But now they just get it. You know, mm-hmm. they said my choice of interacting with it this way, I was choosing this pattern of darkness and I don't have to do that. Can you walk us through what a guided trip is like? Exactly what happens if I'm someone interested in doing it? What do I have to do? How do I prepare? That's a great question because a lot of times I get into the guts of this and I kind of miss what it actually looks like. So if you're going into one of these studies or and eventually if it's approved as a medical treatment, it would look the same way. That's my strong recommendation. There would be rigorous screening. It's going to take a day or two. I mean, our studies, it takes two days where you're going through psychiatric screenings, answering a lot of questions about your history. Not everyone is qualified for the study. So if we see signs that someone is dealing with schizophrenia or they have a strong predisposition for something like that, then they don't go on. If you're at a high risk for cardiovascular disease, then it's not appropriate because it can raise blood pressure. But, you know, if someone's on a controlled hypertensive medication, that's fine. So most people are fine in that category. So anyway, there's a lot of screening, but then for someone that is qualified, they move on to preparation sessions. And it differs by the study, but it's anywhere from four to eight hours of really intense discussion with the two people who are going to be with you during the psilocybin session eventually. So you develop this therapeutic rapport. The participant learns that they can trust these people. And eventually, if that trust isn't there, then we wouldn't move forward. People are putting themselves in a very vulnerable position, and so we have to earn their trust to play that role. And I've played that role in a, over 100 sessions. I spend most of my time outside you know, designing and analyzing, but I spend a lot of days in that room with the people as well and preparing them. So part of that preparation is discussing the person's life broadly. What's your worldview? How do you address the big questions? What was it like growing up? What's your family life? What's important to you in life? Who are your loved ones? How do you relate to them? What's your story, basically? And then there's some discussion of a lot of things that the drug could do, that the experience could be like. It could be this, it could be that, and it's basically a laundry list, but it's really critical to cover the dark side. Like, we tell people, this could be the most frightening experience of your life. The stories I always convey is that I've had multiple veterans who have been in combat that have said, this has replaced combat as being the most intense experience of their life. So, You know, I've never been in combat, so I don't underestimate the power of that statement. That's something stronger than I could state. So I convey that type of information. But also let them know that all of our data and the thousands of participants in previous studies in the older era suggest that in this framework, where we are keeping you safe, you're not going to go out and panic and do something to hurt yourself because you're in this safe container with us and we're with you the whole time. That, you know, we haven't seen any long-term negative outcomes from that. And if you're feeling anxiety, won't you let us know? And we're going to hold your hand and tell you we're there with you. We're not leaving you ever. That's why there's two people. If one person's in the bathroom for even a few minutes, there is another human being that you trust that can hold your hand that say, I'm with you. You're not alone. You're perfectly safe. And then they have the experience at the end of the day. And I should say most of that time on the day, of the session, when they start to feel the effects, we lay them down on the couch. It's a nice living room-like setting where 
you know, there's a couch, artwork on the walls. It doesn't look like a research lab. We have a little heart pressure machine that's like tucked under the end table, <laughs> kind of hidden away. But it's very comforting, the environment. And when they come in that day of their session, we do a few blood pressure checks and things like that. And we have a little bit of a ceremonial, not along any one tradition, but we hand the pill to them. We say we something different, you know, depending on the guy, but we hand this to you in the spirit of self-exploration and, you know, be it to quit smoking or whatever. And any other experience that comes, this is your day. And they take the pill and then anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes, they'll probably start feeling the effects. Then we lay them on the couch. We put eye shades on. We treat them like a baby. We put it on them. We try to do everything (laughs) for them. Your job is just to go inward. You know, their cell phone is in the other room in a safe. Their shoes are in a safe. Like those are tools for the external world. This is your day. And then at the end of the day, after the experience, we have some initial discussion about what it was like. And then we have a loved one come in. They come into the room for usually 10, 15 minutes so they could see what it was like, you know, and the person could tell them whatever they wanted to about their experience. And then that person drives them home or sees them home safely. And then the next day we follow up and basically have a discussion. And how long is the trip typically? Five to six hours. So they're in a total of eight to nine hours for the day. But, you know, the drug effects are at place or Mm. about six hours during that day. Do you feel like hungover after? People don't really report a hungover. It's more like they are processing a big event. Sometimes they're just still a little bit out of it because it was such an intense experience. But one of the nice things is the drug is metabolized cleanly. I mean, hungover typically means alcohol, and alcohol has lots of toxic byproducts. And so your whole nervous system is just reeling from clearing out these things, acetylaldehyde. And so it's not like that. People typically feel pretty good, even though they might have a lot on their mind. Does it ever not work? Yeah, This is an area for exploration, but really just a couple of people out of hundreds of volunteers where they've had a dose that should have been a strong dose where like there was minimal effect. And I've even gone down to the pharmacy and double and triple checked the records and even said, can you just weigh out some lactose on the scale just to show me the amount that you think that went into the just obsessively exploring it. But we don't know. It could be something as boring as the serotonin 2A receptor density in this particular area of the brain. And one day we'll be able to assay someone and figure that out. In the older era, I think the researchers would have been more inclined to say that person may have had psychological defenses. And that could be true or it could be just like, yeah, their genetics are a little different and their serotonin system's a little different. In clinical use, eventually it may be that that person is scheduled for a session a month from now where you up the dose a little bit. When do you foresee psychedelics being more available to people rather than just in the trials? So that would happen once if FDA approves psilocybin or another psychedelic as a therapy. That could be anywhere as soon as five years. My guess is that it's going to be within 10 years. You know, I think it's important for the train not to go too fast. This is something that needs to be done very carefully. There is a risk of clinicians, even well-intentioned clinicians, that may not do things safely. So my hope is, and I feel very encouraged about this. I recently went down with some other experts to the FDA. They had a lot of questions about this. There was a lot of excitement about this. That was really exciting to see their excitement that this new area of medicine, and they don't even necessarily know the right questions always to ask. You know, I would want to make sure that eventual medical use requires, like, people to be doing it in this safe framework, that it's not take two and call me in the morning. These should not be taken home. 
there are risks. And if it's not done right, there will be casualties. And so I just want to be very clear about that and clear that people shouldn't be using this on their own. Yeah. So, Matt, we understand that the FDA hasn't approved the treatments, but what if I want to or one of our listeners want to know where there's trials going on? Can you talk about what trials and where they can find them? We have a number of trials that we're conducting right now at Johns Hopkins. So the best place to go to check that out is at hopkinspsychedelic.org. So if you get on the Internet and just look for that, you will find us. We have a page that lists all of our current studies. Our biggest current study is for people trying to quit smoking cigarettes. But we have a number of upcoming trials as well. We're going to be looking at anorexia, hopefully some work with people dealing with the onset of Alzheimer's disease. And hopefully in the future, we're going to be looking at opioid addiction. So you can always get an update on the research we're conducting at hopkinspsychedelic.org. And are other universities also research centers doing the same thing? So if people wanted to look across the country? Right. There's a few other academic universities in the United States doing this work. Probably the best place to look broadly is to get on the government's clinical trials website, so clinicaltrials.gov, I believe. And if you look up psilocybin, you'll find where those are going on. There's some work going on at the University of Alabama, Birmingham for cocaine addiction. There's some work with alcoholism going on at New York University. And there's a number of other universities that have started up trials or planning to start very soon. We know that it's really important to you and to all of us that people understand that they need to stay on their current medications. So do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Right. Thanks for prompting that. A lot of people, they reach out inquiring once they've heard about this work. And I always like to encourage people that if they did qualify for a study that might be worth looking into, and you've got to look at everything that we know and make that decision for yourself. But oftentimes, they don't qualify for the research for one reason or another. Sometimes the trials need to be limited to just the people within commuting distance to our university. And so there will be people reaching out from, you know, you name it. So something I'll tell your listeners that I always share with people is just, Really, it's critical just remaining engaged in treatment with professionals, with medical doctors, with psychologists, for whatever your condition is. You know, for addiction, we know that the biggest predictor of eventual success is just attempts. So even if this is your fifth, tenth, thirtieth, a hundredth time, all of those previous attempts are not failures. They have set you up for where you're at right now and make you more likely to succeed. So don't give up. Stay involved with treatment. This is the shiny new thing. It's understandable that there's interest. But if it doesn't work out to be in a trial, what's ultimately important is that you're doing what's right for you to put your life right, whatever the issue is. So stay involved with treatment. What is going on in the brain exactly? Do you have a picture of that when somebody's in the middle of going inside? Do you see what's going on? We have some initial findings, both in our lab and also other labs, including some colleagues in Switzerland and in London. They've been on that biological side earlier than we have in terms of brain scanning during these experiences. We've started to do some of that. But the picture that's emerged is that the most interesting thing is that there is a broad-scale change in the way in which brain areas interact with each other. And so normally there's a compartmentalization where there's sort of hubs 
in the brain where this little area is off doing its own thing and it's talking to a certain subset of areas related to it. But the activity there is relatively unrelated to activity elsewhere. It's almost like this compartmentalization of consciousness. I'm probably stretching the science a little bit by putting it that way. But there's sort of this, like if you're setting up a factory or something or, you know, just a society, like you have these people do these things and, you know, you have divide and conquer. You know, you're going to accomplish your goal, but you're going off in independent little groups. But then when the psychedelic is on board, there tends to be more of a global crosstalk a synchronization, the activity in an area whose activity is normally unrelated to an activity in another area is now all of a sudden related. And by related, I mean, you you can look at synchronization. It's not necessarily about things being more or less active. It's about what is the pattern of that activity or inactivity? How does that synchronize with the activity and inactivity in other areas? So it's almost like over here we have a jazz quartet and over here we have some folks playing some folk music and over here we have and now all of a sudden a conductor is coming in and everyone's playing in the same big orchestra temporarily fascinating we ask all of our guests what book they think everyone should read so what book do you think everyone should read well, you've already mentioned Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. He just did an incredible job summarizing the field. I had a number of conversations with him over a couple of years and I'd say things like, oh, you know, you should talk to a colleague in Switzerland or in the Netherlands and he'd say, oh, yeah, I talked to that person, you know, a couple months ago. You know, he's like, he had <laughs> Ahead clearly of the game. Done. Right, right. So he really summarized the science in a really great way. But there's other books about these drugs that I'd recommend. Kind of on the history side, there's a book by an author named Don Latin called Distilled Spirits. And something I like about that is that there's a lot of sort of regurgitated history that you kind of get the same version. And it's good to know, but you get the same version in a lot of books. But this book, Distilled Spirits, really delves into kind of some history that hadn't normally been discussed. And so he actually discussed the connections between Bill Wilson, who founded AA, and sort of the early psychedelic researchers. Yeah, I'd recommend that. Do you have a favorite quote? Favorite quote. Well, one favorite quote, something I think of in the psychedelic context. Let's see. How does it go? Winston Churchill, if you find yourself going through hell, keep going. You know, <laughs> And that's the orientation we encourage during our session. Not necessarily put that way, but if the monster is there, don't run away. In your mind's eye, go up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? Let's talk turkey. You know, what do you represent? What's going on here? If you see something about yourself that you don't like... You dig into it, knock those cobwebs out of the way, explore the basement. Just don't retreat. Take a courageous orientation to facing yourself and facing your difficulties. And it's sort of like a microcosm of life. A lot of times people come into these sessions saying that's how you orient towards life. You've got to face it. There's horrors all around. If you're not facing them or you haven't, just, you know, wait. <laughs> you know, and if you live long enough, you will. And it doesn't matter what your status in life is. The beauty is that there is a transcendence possible. And it's almost because of that backdrop that's what makes it meaningful. Like that's ultimately the point is to find the beauty and the love and the transcendence despite the potential for the horror. So often that's the lesson in a session. And it's easier said than done. And It's not like I do a great job at this, but the more I remind myself, you know, that this is the right way, the better I do you know, or the better anyone does, I think, that you got to face it and face the adversity and find the meaning in it. 
That's amazing that you said it that way because we're really exploring that whole idea of facing with courage whatever comes into your life. And then when you do face it, somehow, some way, it can become a paper tiger. Some way, somehow. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank you for educating us on psychedelics. I think our listeners are going to be fascinated, and we just are grateful to you for coming and joining us. Well, I'm grateful for being asked, and this has been great. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.